The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, we talk with the Hine brothers, Ted and Greg, about their experience building Hine Snowbridge, Atan Pax, and Kirtland. We talk about their experience breaking into the pack business and sending packs to the White House and to space. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me today are two guests, uh, Greg and, and Ted Hine of Hine Snowbridge, uh, Kirtland Tour Pack, and um, is it Atan or Atan? Atan. Okay. I wasn't sure. I didn't see an accent, so I <laughs> wanted to make sure I got the accent right. Um, uh, I appreciate you both being here, founders of, of each of these, these companies. Um, yeah, thanks for taking the time to be on our history of gear series that that we've been uh, been been doing the last few years. So thanks for being here. What was your first introduction to to the outdoors in general or outdoor activity? And either of one, one of you can start, but but what was your first introduction to the outdoors in general? Well, we grew up in the Northeast and Northern New Jersey of all places, but uh, our father had a job, but we typically would recreate and take weekends and do vacations up in New England. And father had been a competitive skier in the late 1930s, uh, was captain of the Yale ski team. And so he had us on skis early. So we just sort of... uh, you know, spent time outdoors. We skied, we attended camp in New Hampshire, all summer camp and learned to canoe and, and climb the mountains. If you can, by Colorado standards, New Hampshire doesn't have very big mountains, but hey, they were pretty big when you were a kid growing up. And so we were active in that sort of thing. And I don't know that where that leads. I know in the mid-1960s, I think it was 1964, uh, my best friend growing up and I bought an old beat-up car. We worked for a month at the beginning of the summer between college years and bought an old beat-up car and drove west. And we came through Colorado and went through California and saw the Rockies and the Sierras and uh, got the wanderlust. And that, in my case, is how I ended up at the University of Colorado. It was time to transfer from junior college in New York. And uh, Colorado seemed like a fun place. So I applied to the University of Colorado. And it turned out, I don't think Greg can comment when I'm done. I don't remember exactly, but I don't think either of us knew that we were both applying to the University of Colorado. It's CU is the abbreviation 
abbreviation at the same time. We sort of met, at, you know, late in the school year in the, in the spring of 66 and said, hey, where are you going to college? Because I was transferring and Greg was coming right out of high school. Does that, is that about the way you remember it, Greg? Yes. Uh, so uh, from my, you know, my side of it is also by the word climbing mountains, it was actually hiking up mountains in those days. It wasn't climbing by the vernacular of climbing nowadays right. with, uh, you know, technical gear or anything. Um, yes. And actually, I drove uh, with Ted back across the country in that 1964 trip. Also fell in love with Colorado, being an Easterner, and decided that I was going to go to Colorado to college. And so uh, I did that. And then uh, late in college, matter of fact, 1969, I happened to buy a Volkswagen uh, microbus that had been converted to a camper. And uh, in 1970, uh, Ted and I uh, took off from California in my camper. And uh, went up, uh, went backpacking in uh, Mount Rainier National Park, uh, went uh, through the Canadian Rockies and everything. Uh, also uh, backpacked through uh, Glacier National Park from the west side to the east side. And um, so the combination of uh, backpacking in 1970, camping out of the camper, the two of us and whatever, I think that's probably... The first time that uh, I, you know, seriously spent spent some serious time, uh, I guess, under the stars or camping, camping. So, well, you both follow a similar trajectory to was it Jerry and Ann Cunningham, who I think they they both lived in New Jersey or New York, and and headed out west and headed you know ended up in in the Boulder area and and then later on started jerry mountain sports and it's interesting that you follow in in kind of similar footsteps even down to coming from the east coast and and coming to the the rockies i don't know if you've ever you know thought of that that direct comparison before certainly you have to think about you know the heritage that you're coming into starting a company in I'm boulder and i'm getting sure. ahead of myself but have you thought about it in those terms before yeah, I'm not sure I knew that Jerry Cunningham was from the East Coast. And mm -hmm. I think in the years in Boulder, I may have only met him once. Though just an interesting sidelight coincidence kind of thing is our youngest brother, Henry, who's not here and was had nothing to do with, with Heinz Snowbridge. Uh, he also attended the University of Colorado and he rented Jerry Cunningham's house up near Ward in the mountains outside of Boulder one year. Just happened to be a rental, and he and some college friends rented it one year. Yeah. Uh, so he got to know Jerry better than we did. I think Jerry was retired at the time and was spending his time sailing somewhere. I can't remember all the yeah. all the specifics. But yeah. During college and, and the trip Greg was talking about when we went up and, and backpacked in the Canadian Rockies one summer, uh, starting a pack company was not on our mind. That wasn't what was going on. Greg was still in college. I think at the time I'd graduated in 69, had been subject to the draft, but it turned out that the army didn't want me. So I was kind of between jobs. Uh, and that was in 1970. And we got the company started in 72. Uh, I guess I'll go ahead and explain how we got to that. I, in 70, I guess it was 
Well, in, in 1971, I got a job as the computer operator for Alpine Design, which was one of the founding companies of the sort of the adult recreational backpacking market, the post-war baby boom generation. It had just been bought out by General Recreation, which was a big mini conglomerate that had uh, operating out of Wall Street that had purchased Alpine Design and I think Ithaca Gun, which made shotguns and 10X manufacturing made hunting clothing. And I think there was a food, this freeze-dried food line in there. It was a mini conglomerate, but I'd gone to work for them as a computer operator. I had an interest in computer and uh, applied for a, a job uh, as their computer operations manager. So I spent a year and a half doing that. During the same period, and Greg can go into the details when I'm done, Greg had become a seasonal park ranger for the National Park Service. And in late, I guess it was early, it was early 1972, the winter, I was laid off from my job because they were replacing my computer with a, with a bigger one back east. And I went and visited Greg out in California, where he was a, uh, a ski ranger at, in, in Yosemite. What was that, the Badger Pass ski area? Do I rem remember that correctly? And so I'm unemployed, and in, in another month or two, Greg was going to be unemployed. And we were out, I think, you know, enjoying the snow in Yosemite. I think we did some cross-country skiing and, and a little bit of backcountry skiing. And uh, we kind of said, hey, we both don't do anything. We like the outdoors. Maybe we should get into the business. I, I had figured out and known from my year and a half at Alpine Design, it, the, out, outdoor recreation was growing like mad. I'm 78 years old, which puts me right at the cutting edge or just off the front of the cutting edge of the baby boom generation. So, so sort of everything that I got involved in uh, the, you know, post-war baby boomers kind of followed my lead. I, that, that's an overstatement, obviously, but I was sort of on the cutting edge of the thinking of the post-war baby boomers and Alpine Design, which at the time was making everything from tents to sleeping bags to packs to ski gear, ski clothing for the winter, for the winter months was growing like mad and had horrendous growth problems. They were having quality control problems and delivery problems and uh, just things that are typical of, um, of a company that's, that's perhaps growing a little too fast. They were really trying hard, but not always succeeding. So I've, I had, my degree was in business administration. So I kind of had some background in how to run a company, though I didn't have a lot of hands-on experience. Greg had the experience as a park ranger. And so, hey, why don't we see if we can manufacture some of this stuff? Maybe we can sell it. And it turned out we could. Anyway, Greg, why don't you jump in here and add your perspective to all of that? So I was a, um, I, I have a degree in environmental biology, 1971, University of Colorado, which was very early in the environmental uh, you know, regime, and uh, got a job as a uh, naturalist, natural, naturalist at Mount Rainier, summer 71, 72. And after this being a summer seasonal there, I moved down to Yosemite 
and was literally a ski ranger at Yosemite. I lived at the Chinquapin Ranger Station. And uh, so, yes, uh, I was a uh, uh, yeah, uh, ranger. And as Ted said, he came out. Uh, we talked about doing uh, something. And so uh, at the end of the winter, instead of staying on with the Park Service, I headed back to Boulder. And uh, we... I, I think it was June 1st, 72 is when our official start date was, Ted. I, I think something like that. It's June. I don't know whether it was the first, but June works. Yeah. And we uh, rented a small, tiny office in a building that would be soon condemned in downtown Boulder. And uh, just the two of us and literally started with uh, no experience in sewing, no experience in designing, although actually... Uh, for our trip in the summer of uh, uh, 1970 uh, through Canadian Rockies, whatever, I had made a tent. So, uh, you know, designed a very simple tent uh, from, you know, from uh, basically nothing. And uh, so, but we just literally uh, started out with, uh, you know, yeah, just nothing, just uh, office, two people, you know, and a desk built our own, you know, little cutting table and got one sewing machine, one uh, sewing machine, and uh, off we went. And then it was, it was what? It was about a year, just about a year before we sold our first product, which was to Gary Neptune at uh, Neptune Mountaineering, which he had just started. He was running a very small uh, outdoor shop and a boot repair um, so he's kind of a split between Mountain Sports and Steve Comito uh, out of a little tiny storefront uh, in a strip mall in Boulder. He was our first customer. And probably it might have been like May or June of 73 when those first products were on the wall. I remember about the same thing. And I guess uh, just to define where Greg and I were going, uh, I did have a, not a design background, certainly not in camping equipment, but I'd always, as, as a kid growing up, our father was an engineer and I was a tinkerer. I had, and I actually had a year of engineering early in college. So I ended up sort of being our designer. I was making the patterns and worrying about that sort of thing. But yeah, it, we had no particular business plan that we written out with time frames or anything. It was basically a bunch of young kids out of college with a dream and we got busy and boy, were we busy because it, yeah, it took a year to design a line of, of data in effect, what were day packs. And uh, also, I mean, we had to worry about suppliers. Where do we get this stuff? Now, I had some knowledge of that. Having worked for Alpine Design, I had a general idea as to where some of the primary materials came from so we could we could get addresses or names or, or find companies where we could get supplies. But yeah, it takes a long, there's a long lead time. And actually, that 
that year lead time follows us throughout the history of the company because if we wanted to introduce a new line of products, even when we're an established company, it would take a year to design and develop and work the bugs out and get the new chains of distribution going. So, but we didn't know this when we started out. Yeah, we were just a bunch of kids, kids with a dream. And, uh, and oh, and what we were learning during that first year, which served us well over the years, is Greg naturally tended toward uh, the people functions, the sales, the marketing, dealing with the outside world. And I'm uh, much more ingoing and I would then dealt with the design and the management and uh, that kind of thing. And that turned out to be a very good split because we were on a day-to-day basis, we weren't tripping on each other. We'd certainly get together on all major decisions, but on a day-to-day basis, I ended up worrying about design, manufacturing, financing, Greg worried about sales, marketing, trade shows, those sorts of things. I guess it would certainly be an overstatement. There were a number of years that Greg can go into in more detail where Greg spent half the year out of town calling on dealers and dealing with trade shows or more than half the year. So the joke was kind of like Greg would come into town, open the door of the factory and yell, more packs. And then he'd go back out on the road again. (laughs) So, So then a little, so kind of moving ahead on history, we you know, uh, had our little office um, on second floor. Uh, and then uh, what year did we move out to Todd's garage, Ted? Would that have been 73? That, that was about a year after. And actually, that's where we, we, I guess we had one seamstress sewing prototypes early on uh, in downtown Boulder, but there wasn't enough space there. It was basically a couple of dilapidated offices there wasn't enough space to set up multiple sewing machines so we moved to what greg just referred to as todd's garage well we we rented the we rented half of a uh todd's garage and he was on one side of the building we were on the other and i think that was like 2500 square feet and we probably had what maybe five or six sewing machines by that time ted that would be correct. Todd's garage was he was an auto repair shop. Yeah. And pop auto research repair shop. And we had a we had a fumes problem for a while with our sewing machine operators. They'd <laughs> <laughs> run a car next door and the fumes would come through the walls. So we, we ended up down there on weekends sealing cracks in walls, as I recall. Yeah. So then also, so we started out with backpacks uh, in 73. And then uh, we ran into a gentleman who had the uh, touring cyclist shop. He was mail order only. And he was looking for a manufacturer of packs. Again, this is 1973 and 74. He was looking for um, a manufacturer of packs. We were looking for some work. So we, and I've, I've been a, as an adult, I've been a bicyclist, a, you know, a serious recreational bicyclist. Um, and so we started to make packs for, for um, uh, the touring cyclist shop, Hartley Alley. And because he basically was only doing mail order, um, we basically agreed with him that we would just sell retail. So we started to work on our own line of bicycle packs, which I think we introduced in 74. Is that right, Ted? Yes. Our yeah. first catalog, so, first catalog that, was 74, I think. Yeah, so our backpacks were under the Heinz Snowbridge label. 
and our backpacks were under the Kirtland Tour Pack label. And Kirtland is also a family name. So, and uh, so then uh, let's see, we were in Todd's garage for probably what, two years before we moved out to Prairie Street? I think it was only a year. I might okay. be wrong. But. Yeah, okay. But then we, we the, the business seemed to be about doubling every year. And so uh, then in 74 or 75, we moved out to Prairie Street, east of Boulder, into what was really a, uh, our first formal manufacturing building. I mean, it was a building that was actually built for light manufacturing. And at that point, we had 5,000 square feet, right, Ted? Uh, that, that more or less, I don't remember exactly. Also, that was about the time we, as soon as we started selling packs, we were growing like mad. And we applied for and got a, a small business administration loan, which allowed us, uh, uh, because at, we're in a seasonal business, where in the slow season, you don't sell much, but you need to be making inventory to get to have ready for the next winter. So we, we were approved for a small business administration loan. And uh, about, oh, and just, I haven't thought about this in years, just a, a, a little aside is, yeah, I think we were at 3275 Prairie Avenue in Boulder, which also happened to be the, it was the building right next door to where George Lamb had started Alpsport, which became Alpine Design. And so we were right there where George Lamb, you know, 10 years before or whatever number of years before had started his business. And that, that was just a total coincidence. Also, Jericho had been just down the street uh, about 100 yards or something. Yeah, that, that's that right. So it was a little hub. Um, so we were there for uh a year or two, and then again, uh, expanded to 10,000 square feet with a second facility kind of uh, across the railroad tracks. So yeah. walking, walking distance across <laughs> the back alley, a back alley and a, and a set of railroad tracks because we were locked into a lease in, the, in our current location. Actually, the location on Prairie Avenue, we actually expanded over a couple of years to fill the building. We didn't have the full building, but other tenants were moving out when we needed more space. But yeah, that's right. We ended up with a, uh, with a second location. And because of that, we needed a vehicle to haul work and process manufacturing back and forth between the two locations so we leased a white chevy van that to this day is still parked in my driveway i still have that van and it runs <laughs> as a classic car so um so uh yes uh heinz nobridge and kirtland were both uh, growing rapidly we added some sales reps uh Ted was right. Uh, during the probably the 74, 75, 76 years, I was spending easily 180 days out of the office. I would get in my car and disappear and uh, drive the West Coast and then come back through Boulder and then head all the way to the East Coast. And I spent, uh, I spent, I remember easily 180 nights a year on the road uh, selling to bicycle shops, independent bicycle dealers, and, uh, you know, the small independent backpack stores throughout the country. So we, we had stores all the way from, uh, you know, basically New England to Southern California. And uh, 
you know, those were the heady years. Uh, we were doubling sales every year, slowly adding sales reps. Um, we at, at in those days we were using uh, factory reps. You know, they were employees of the company, and they would have huge territories by today's standards. You know, uh, it started out that uh, the higher the rep we hired was uh, in charge of everything east of the Mississippi, and I was in charge of everything west of the Mississippi. So, and but we slowly added reps, um, slowly added dealers. And uh, yeah, so, um, and then we kept growing and finally moved into a factory out northeast of Boulder. Uh, what in 1980, Ted? Is that when? Yeah, it's 1980. Yeah. When when did we add a tan? Was that before we moved into that or after? I think we were developing a tan before we moved in, and and really didn't get it marketed until afterwards. Okay. Back so up a little bit and a few words about our overview marketing strategy from a business point of view. Greg mentioned that our first dealer was Gary Neptune and his store is still a big deal in Boulder if you're into you know outdoor recreation, though Gary's retired and, and sold that a number of years ago. But the reason we had no trouble getting into Neptune had to do with a marketing strategy that Greg implemented uh, from then on, at least until we became well known, in that Gary was just starting a store, didn't have access to a lot of product lines. And in those days, and it still applies today, I think, in various areas of, uh, of business, is dealers liked uh, the local sporting goods dealer or say Mountain Sports in Boulder, as an example, was a big retailer in town in those days, would carry North Face and Sierra Design and Alpine Design and the big names. But those big names didn't like, there are Mountain Sports didn't like the competitors in town selling the same product line. And what this did is it opened up when Greg would go into a, a new market. As I recall, this was the, what was the dealer in Berkeley, California? You went and found ski, the dealer that carry Sierra Design and knocked on their door and they said, yes, we want your packs. We can't get Sierra Design. I may have that slightly wrong, but, but it was a business strategy that enabled us to grow because we could fill in void, little marketing voids uh, along the way. Well, that was my next question was, was what do you think, where do you attribute a lot of that early success to? I mean, what were you product wise? Was the product different? Was it solving a certain need? Were you riding that or were you riding like a larger wave and interest in backpacking or was it a combination? What, what do you attribute a lot of that early success to and, and that, that rapid growth in the last, or, you know, in the first few years? I, th- I think our day packs uh, basically just uh, filled the niche that Ted said, uh, you know, we were a different brand because I don't think our day packs, they were classic, you know, leather, leather bottom, you know, uh, 420 10-year nylon, et cetera. I don't think they were tr- truly, I mean, they were different, but they weren't, you know, truly unique. Now, later, we were very early in internal frame packs, Okay. And so I do think that from an innovation point of view, that helped carry us into dealers. And then also in the case of our bicycle packs, uh, we both had innovative designs, but we also were riding a wave 
uh, in the mid 70s, bicycle touring was exploding. And there was a group out of Missoula, Montana called Bike Centennial that was promoting long distance riding. And uh, so the combination of having innovative products and have and just riding the wave was what allowed our, um, our, our bicycle business to grow so rapidly. So, uh, so starting out, not so innovative on the backpack side, becoming pretty innovative, being a very early company and in, in internal frame packs and then riding the wave uh, with innovative product in on the bicycle side. Right. And because this, this the was internal a- frame packs would begin to get us into dealers. We couldn't otherwise get into with our day packs. They, they busted open the, the market for us. And I think, uh, and we were pretty much our really only serious competition in internal frames for a long time was low Alpine systems, which was also located not far from us in Lafayette, Colorado, which is today a suburb of Boulder in effect. But yeah, we were going head to head with the Low brothers. You know, we'd try and out design them this year and they'd try and out design us next year. And uh, the battle, it was friendly it was friendly competition for sure and uh because we ended up sharing employees in town you know seamstress would work for us for a while and low would offer them more money and they'd go over there we'd hire their employees there was a certain amount of back and forth there but in in general uh, competition in all of our markets was pretty clean up front but 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 serious competition. So yeah, the internal frames got us into, uh, and, you know, really put us on the map nationally and uh, the bicycle packs. I think I mentioned on my website that an interesting phenomenon happened when we first got bicycle packs were just growing this bicycle touring boom that exploded and has since pretty much gone away. Uh, You know, where was the bicycle tour going to buy their packs. They, they would buy their bicycle at a bicycle shop. They'd buy all their, their sleeping bags and tents and freeze-dried food at a backpacking shop. Where do they buy their bicycle packs? And we first were selling our bicycle packs sold better through backpacking stores. Mm-hmm. And then that shifted bicycle dealers started calling us and saying you know our customers are coming in and asking for packs so within a few years our bicycle packs were selling much better through bicycle shops but it's an interesting dynamic that realistically bicycle packs sort of got their their national start in backpacking shops that is interesting have anything to add to that no, I think we can probably move on to the reason we created a tan camera packs is that we were definitely a summer seasonal business. And in those days with SLR cameras and everything, uh, that was more of a Christmas seasonal business. And so we were looking to smooth out our seasonality. Would you concur, Ted? Yes, and but uh, camera packs used pretty much the same materials and and had the same training curve for sewing machine operators. It was an easy switch to go from making uh, backpacks to camera packs in the factory, yep. and, and from a materials ordering standpoint, so it was a logical switch. And we weren't and the only company that did that. I think Low Alpine followed mm-hmm. or attempted to follow us into that, but and, uh, it was a logical and, and Low Pros 
low pro is still there. But we actually, uh, we were very early in making very, very stylish and uh, uh, they just looked really good and functioned really good camera packs. And at our first uh, camera trade show, we made quite the, uh, uh, quite the splash. And uh, because uh, the packs were so well received, uh, we very quickly ended up uh, supplying packs to the uh, White House press photographers. Those are the those are the guys that are government employees. They're inside the White House. They're not the they're not the news news people. They're the ones who take the archival pictures of the president and whatever. And also was lucky enough to uh, end up making some packs. It was a very small business, but a very large prestige. Make some. We made some packs that uh, ended up flying on the space shuttle. And again, it was primarily because we were very early and very uh, functional, very stylish uh, camera packs. So this was uh, during the time when SLR cameras were uh, the big deal. So that's yeah. the ultimate outdoor product, right? The bag <laughs> that goes to space. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, and actually, did you on your on your website, Ted, did you put some pictures of Sally Ride and whatever? Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We I, I we put, actually I put those on there. Ted, not, Ted and I trade back at, at about a decade. Matter of fact, I think it's my turn. Um, it, it probably is. But you're in California. <laughs> yeah. half the time. But we have we actually have a pack that flew in space. Do you actually have it there where you can grab it, Ted? Is it on a, ca- is it on a file uh, cabinet or something? It's, it's upstairs and it okay. looks exactly the same as the pictures on my, yeah. wow. on my website. But it flew in space. NASA was a huge bureaucracy. I mean, it was a huge feather in our marketing cap. Rick loved putting the, these bags on the space shuttle, but we didn't make any money on that project. That NASA bureaucracy was, it was, was a tiny project. insane. And one of the reason we ended up with that pack is one of their requirements was once something flew in space, NASA as a policy, you know, every part on the space shuttle that they could send back had to be sent back to the manufacturer to be inspected to make sure that it it, it performed as it should. So that's why NASA sent that back to packed to us. They also required engineering drawings. Now, I could do engineering drawings because I had a year of engineering, but a pack pack design, you don't do engineering dimension drawings. You make patterns and markers, and there are techniques for doing that. Uh, But NASA had to have engineering drawings. And so when we sent them, uh, when Lois, who was our designer that designed those packs, uh, sent the packs to NASA, NASA had a, a, a draftsman draw engineering drawings showing every stitch in three views. <laughs> you know, and I still have copies of those stored somewhere in my garage. It's an example of the bureaucracy. But anyway, yeah, the camera packs uh, uh, started with a bang. Actually, Greg mentioned they were used by White House press photographers. Greg and I got a tour of the basement of the West Wing of the White House by George Bush, Vice President George Bush's personal photographer once. Remember that, Greg? Sure. And, uh, uh, oh, the other thing, because it started with a bang and we had such high class, you know, 
the products were well accepted early on. We ended up employing a fellow that had a lot of experience in the camera business. We're not quite sure whether we recruited him or he recruited us, but he was a fellow that was instrumental in the early days of Nikon cameras being brought into this country back in the 1950s. And uh, so his knowledge of the camera business was extremely valuable. He had been most recently working for, I think it was Pentax in Denver, and they laid him off or they had a disagreement or something, and he wanted to stay in Denver. And we were this little tiny pack company. We weren't one of these great big companies, but he ended up working for us for a couple of years. And he was a he was a, a really nice guy and a horrendous asset. But anyway, oh, and something we haven't mentioned directly, but it's just sort of implied in all the products we've ever made. It was our goal from day one, and I believe we accomplished that right up to the end, was to make a quality product. I mean, we weren't trying to make low-end garbage or mid-range stuff just to sell and use once and, and be stuck in the garage. Our products were designed to be the best you could get anywhere, and I think we succeeded in doing that. Yeah. So, uh, so then uh, th- things were going very well with Kirtland. Things were going very well with uh, a tan. So probably in like 1982 or 83, we decided to focus on those two brands and stop making Heinz Snowbridge, right? So we actually stopped making the Heinz Snowbridge packs. Yes. Heinz Snowbridge had become relative. I don't think well, and somewhere in the mid-80s, sales of everything began to decline. But I, Heinz Snowbridge had been dwarfed by Kirtland in that season, and a tan was taking off. And I think we made the decision to just kind of shut down the Heinz Snowbridge line a year or two before we, you know, we sold off the rest of the company. Yeah, yeah. And then we – so we, the company, say – through 1980 or 81 had been doubling about every year. And so, uh, you know, we had over a hundred employees in our factory in Boulder making packs. Uh, Things were going really great. And then we got hit by, I'd say a one, two, three punch over a couple years. Punch number one was we were in bicycle touring and, uh, you know, we were very focused on packs. Okay. We were in bicycle touring. And what came along in, I believe it was 1982, was something called the fat tire bike. And very quickly, the bicycle shops went from featuring and, uh, you know, upfront bicycle touring and the equipment to go with that over a couple of years. Fat tire took over and still, truthfully, is probably. Uh, the look, I, don't, I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if fat tire bikes outsell street bikes, you know, in the independent bicycle dealers nowadays. Yeah. So fat tire bicycles uh, really started to hurt us from the point of view of the Kirtland side. On the Atan side, do you want to take this, Ted? Oh, well, the, the, the gray market. Well, not the gray market. The, basically, the point-and-shoot camera came along. Well, and, that too. Yeah, and, base, and, and again, really took a big market chunk out of the SLR market. 
And our packs, you know, we figured if you're going to spend $1,000 on a camera equipment, you'd spend $100 on a pack. But all of a sudden, these point-and-shoot cameras were seriously impacting the SLR market. So we really had kind of a one-two punch there. Both of our markets were being diluted. And then the third punch was the fact that people started, uh, people, factories started to go offshore. And so we started to have a pricing problem, not a product problem. Uh, People still liked our designs. We, in 19, was it 1984, Ted, that we came up with uh, uh, the, no, it was 1980. What year was it that we came up with the fast packs and the lever lock and everything for, for the touring bags? Well, that was our last major design push. I think it was 84. Yeah, okay. So we, we didn't have a design problem. People loved our designs and they liked our packs. Believe it or not, we were one of the first companies to, to uh, create the bicycle wedge pack. So along with road gear, uh, we showed up at a trade show. They had one little pack. We had three wedge packs. So believe it or not, Kirtland can be considered the father of the bicycle wedge pack. Anyway, um, we, uh, okay, so the third one, two, three punch was the fact that many companies were going offshore and, uh, you know, we no longer had, uh, we didn't have a pricing problem, excuse me, we didn't have a product problem. People loved our products. We had a pricing problem. So our business uh, started to decline. And through, I guess, 84, 85, 86, our business was probably again declining at about 50% a year. Wouldn't you say that, Ted? I don't think it was 50% a year, but it was going, certainly it was going down and uh, we recognized there wasn't a lot we could do about it. There were a couple of other factors at play. Also, the uh, there had been an Arab oil embargo in 1973 and another one in 1979, which was a driving factor in the bicycle movement that that pushed a lot of people toward bicycles. But by the mid 1980s, the price of gas was coming back down. The uh, uh, yeah, the Arab oil embargo of '79 was sort of in the in the rearview mirror. So that was affecting us. And also, post-war baby boomers were beginning to their buying patterns were changing. They were beginning to buy mortgages and and invest in babies as much or more so as recreational gear. And so we were, uh, we were certainly impacted with that. So we had a, a number of different things working against us pretty much all at the same time. Yep. yep. So we ended up uh, selling the company to a, a place called Quality Sports Products out of Old Saybrook, Connecticut in September of 86. And uh, because they were into ski, mainly ski bags, so they were looking for summer seasonal business. And we at that time were primarily summer seasonal business. Uh, so uh, it was a very good fit. So what else? What other? They all, the quality sports products also knew how to, how to get supplied from offshore. They, yes. had, connect, they had connections 
uh, offshore as to where they were already had things built. So, so that looked like a, a, a pretty good fit. And at that time, you can imagine after, I think we're now going on 14 years or something of, of you know, working seven days a week, Greg and I were pretty burned out. <laughs> so it was just kind of time to, yeah, so we, so we just started looking for a buyer. And I guess it was late in 1986, the, the final papers were sold, quality sports product was going to revive the Heinz Snowbridge line. They were going to have that made offshore, and then they were going to bring Kirtland in. We sold, we closed up what was left of the of our operation in Boulder, I closed that down and collected receivables and sold off excess materials while Greg was spent a number of months back east with the new owner, making sure we had a good, you know, a transition of our dealers went smoothly and, uh, and, yeah. you know, worrying about trend transitioning the design issues and, and things of that nature, but we ensured a smooth transition. Yeah. So, so qu- what questions do you have, Chase? <laughs> I've got quite a few. We covered a lot it. of territory. Uh-huh. Okay. Go um, for it. I, I am curious maybe to just wrap that up. What, you know, after getting out of the, the product business, uh, what, what did you de- decide to do then? I mean, you, you did, one thing for for so long where did you take your lives after that i mean what what was kind of that next chapter for you and, well, and where are you at at, at this point okay i'll go first because i stayed in the outdoor industry so uh after we sold the company um we i we uh, you know i went back and worked for six months with the new company in connecticut and uh as part of that, traveled to Asia with them to show their, their you know, uh, th- their people how to make our products. And um, then after a four-year non-compete, ex- non-competition agreement uh, expired, I jumped back into the outdoor industry. And then uh, from 1990 to 2005, when I retired, uh, ended up making uh, products uh, and uh, what I call it is we designed, sourced, and or supplied products for a lot of the larger folks. Uh, so I was a supplier on OEM, private label products for everybody from REI to Land's End to L.L. Bean, Bass Pro Sports, uh, to on the bicycle side to, you know, uh, performance, uh, Cannondale, uh, GT, uh, you 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 name it, and uh, I I basically manufactured or designed, sourced, and or supplied products for a bunch of people. I retired in 05. and now you just get to play, right? Well, uh, mm, yeah, Maybe, not know. so much, not well, as much as you'd like. Well, um, I I was lucky enough that over the years, uh, I. Invested in a couple of uh, income properties in Boulder, so I now am a, a landlord, an owner of a couple of income properties which I manage. That's great. Yeah, Ted. Oh well, we 
did a number of things. I mean, I continued to be half owner of the company right up until uh, we both sort of eased ourselves into retirement. But we, oh, did a number of things. Good grief. We are, I was, uh, I guess you could call me a, a IT consultant for a while. If for a year or so, it, it was a year or so after we sold off the company, but I was retained by Avocet, which was a, a maker of a national leader in bicycle seats. They, I had uh, sort of as part of my job with Heinz Snowbridge, I developed what turned out to be one of the best computer systems in the industry, we think, both for manufacturing and for wholesale distribution, and had a reputation of as being pretty good at that sort of stuff. So Avocet uh, had me come out and spend a lot of time with their employees and study all their computer needs. This was long before the personal computer came along. This was in the days of what were known as mini computers, uh, which weren't quite as big as these mainframes that took up whole buildings back in the late 60s and 70s. But So I, I, I basically wrote a request for proposal uh, and arranged for uh, the hardware and software vendors to come in and, and solve Avocet's computer problems. So that got me involved in the IT business for a while. And then I was actively involved with Greg's help, although I was the primary motivator. We developed a product, started, was known as the message machine, name changed to Town Square Kiosk. Had nothing to do with the outdoor recreation. It was in effect a reverse vending machine for high traffic areas of supermarkets that solved the supermarkets have a bulletin board problem. The, the Customers force them to have some kind of a bulletin board where they can post their lost cat or their dog. Not so much with the internet anymore, but you know, they, and they'd have to have a bulletin board that it created a clutter problem and a management problem for supermarket managers. So, Greg and I came up with a, in effect, a reverse vending machine where the customer would come post their own ad. It would, it was computerized. It would time when the ad had to come out. And it, it actually became one of the, on a square foot basis, one of the highest revenue generators for supermarkets. And we spent a number of years developing this, testing it in supermarkets in the Denver metro area, and then went for to get venture capital. We were looking for some serious venture capital to, to do a, a, an official startup. We had all the numbers look good. Our problem was one of incredibly poor timing. I don't know if you remember in the late 90s and the early 2000s, it was the dot-com boom in business. And if your name didn't end in dot-com, you couldn't raise venture capital because the venture capitals weren't the least bit interested. It didn't matter how good your idea was. And it also coincidentally was at a time where there were a couple of huge venture capital plays going on, you know, billion-dollar investments uh, that were going to, using this new thing called the internet, they were going to deliver everybody's groceries and grocery stores as we know them were going to go out of business. So coming up with this marvelous idea for a supermarket didn't look 
like a good investment proposal, you know, idea at the time. Now it turns out, gee, those grocery stores didn't go out of business. But in any case, that's kind of where that where that ended, and that uh, that was probably the biggest single project I was involved in since we got out of the backpacking business. But that had nothing to do with the backpacking business. I mean, I still ski a lot. I ski a lot more now than I did when I was spending seven days a week making backpacks. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have a few questions yeah. about, I mean, throughout, throughout the history. Um, but in those early days, what, what were brands or products or gear that, that inspired you before you got into the business yourselves was were there products that you loved or brands that you liked or that you that that influenced your design decisions or you just liked at the time? Interesting question. And I, that I really never thought of this way before. But yeah, um, Greg and I attended the University of Colorado. And when I was at CU and just getting into backpacking, uh, uh, you know, and, and outdoor things, uh, you know, going west of, of Boulder and hiking around up in the mountains, I had purchased an Alpsport pack and an Alpsport ski parka, which was George Lamb. I assume you know who George is. Uh, and I just bought them at the, at the retail level. Uh, and it also, I used to walk by the uh, uh, the Hollybar store, which was in the, uh, the the hill area of of Boulder, with a, a shopping little shopping district. I'd walk by Hollybar every day, going to class, and had met Leroy and Alice Hollybar a couple of times, and I, and so that. I think in terms of equipment, that was sort of my first exposure, that Alpine Design uh, pack that I bought in a ski park uh, that I still have, I believe, and Alpsport. It was Alpsport when I bought them, uh, were kind of my first exposure to serious outdoor gear. And uh, for our 1970 trip, I actually bought a Kelty external frame pack and uh, used it, uh, liked it, still have it. You know, it's in the closet. And uh, the interesting thing is by the mid-late 70s, I actually met Dick Kelty and learned that he was he had had a heart attack. And so he was a serious cyclist and he was using Kirtland packs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was kind of that was kind of a uh, makes you happy. I, uh, with kind of along those lines, did you, did you, either of you ever have a moment where you saw your product out in the wild? Oh, for the, the first, I guess for the first time, what was there, was there a moment that that happened and what was that feeling like for you seeing something that you created out there and you didn't know the person, right? Oh, it was just I, someone out recreating. I, and I, what was I, that like? I still attack people when I see them <laughs> with my product, but in the days when I was, uh, making you know product for everybody else uh i could not walk through an airport uh or um you know uh be out bicycling or something else without seeing my products without seeing products that i was involved with uh you know uh, uh, i was basically in the tonnage business at that point you know and uh making tens of thousands of, of packs a year uh, type of thing and so I would see them everywhere, but still, uh, well, uh, the most recent would be, or not most recent, but a few years ago, I was on a, a week-long bicycle ride across uh, 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 Iowa. It's called Ragbri, 
It's a very famous ride. It has about 20,000 participants, and it takes about a week to ride across with you know 20,000 of your closest friends. <laughs> so I'm riding along one day, and there's a college-age young man who's riding with a full set of Kirtlands. Now, this is this is in the, you know, probably about 2014. <laughs> and we sold the company in 86. So, of course, I had to stop and assault this, <laughs> this, this young man. And I basically said, those must be your parents' packs. And he goes, oh, yeah, they're my dad's, you know. And so I explained to him who, who I was. And we took pictures of, you know, and I'm sure he, you know, with his, with his, you know, iPhone or whatever. And I'm sure he took them to his dad. And I still have a picture of those packs uh, on my computer right here. Well, uh, along those lines, what do you think of, um, I think especially now people are interested in the history and the heritage and collecting and, and uh, there's an attention to detail when it comes to product. And um, I mean, we talked about our friend, Alan Wanker, right? It was a pack collector and has has probably over 50 packs or more. I, I, probably keeps buying them but uh, you know he was the one that introduced me to you all and and uh, what what do you think of of that or, or this this um, this individual you mentioned right inheriting these products and and still using them like wh- what do you both think of that right where there's there's still a level of interest there's collectors out there there's people who want the real product right they want something that you know one of these heritage outdoor companies that that was there in the early days well how do you feel about that i i like the term heritage because you know truthfully obviously the products nowadays are far far superior to what we did the technologies uh, far superior. The materials are far superior. The designs far superior. Um, but at the time, you know, I mean, you know, we were, uh, you know, probably part of the Model Ts or whatever. And uh, you know, uh, I guess I'm very proud of what we did and where we were, and who we were. And at the time, the business was pretty small. You know, uh, most people, you know, you you either knew of or knew. You know, people, you, you know, uh, mentioned Dana Gleason before we started, you know, whatever. And when I mentioned the ski hut, I remember Peter Noon, you know, who was uh, probably the manager of the ski hut at the time in Berkeley. This would be like 74, you know, uh, Peter Rich at Velo, uh, Velo Sport, also in Berkeley. So a um, lot of friend, a lot of friendships uh, in the industry, you know, small industry, all of us working really hard, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good time. It was a good time, you know, wasn't as big and wasn't as business quite, quite probably as business-like as maybe running, you know, running the North Face, which is now of course owned by VF Corp, et cetera, et cetera. It was back in the small days. Well, with with that said, I, I think, uh, I mean, like we started this whole conversation, you've kind of followed this similar trajectory to a, a Jerry and Anne moving from the east, coming to to Boulder. Um, it's a it's a story that is, you know, after I've talked to a few people, is is a little familiar in some ways. Where you have company or individuals like, um, I've, I've I've talked with a few people about the history of Rivendell. Mountain Works, okay, yep. and people like Larry Horton um, leaving California and 
quote unquote, escaping to the mountains or escaping to his own Rivendell, right? And starting this this company and, and in, kind in of Victor, treating right in Victor, yeah. And right. really treating building this company as his escape, right? And um I think it's fact, actually, I I went to I think he had, I think he had a factory in a church. Yep. In Victor. Yep. He did. I, I went by, saw the factory. Believe it or not, I still have a Rivendell Jensen pack. Wow. You know, in, in, you know, uh, at home, very innovative design. He, you know, it, it, truthfully, it wasn't mass market at all, but at the time it was ex- extremely well-built, very innovative design. Yeah. So I oh. went, uh, it must've been 74, 75. I went I, by, by his little, little factory. I just think it's interesting that a lot of founders of the time, especially this era, seventies era, pack makers, there's kind of that similar trajectory, similar story of, you know, uh, leaving, leaving the East or leaving the West and coming to the mountains and, and starting something new and, and making product to serve, you know, the needs that you had when you were out recreating. But yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the Larry Horton story is one that we're, we're definitely interested in. And, and uh-huh. we've kind of chronicled the history of packs and definitely want to make sure that the Jensen pack gets, gets a shout out there. Um, oh, it was, it was super innovative. I think that the, you know, uh, I think the macro issues are one is it was a growing market. So it opened the door for, you know, any of us to get in. And if you just kept your nose to the grind wheel, uh, you know, and listen to your customer, you probably could, you know, be successful. I, I don't think Ted and I are unique. Uh, otherwise you had to work hard. It had to, timing had to be right. The luck had to be right. Um, you know, uh, and I, they, when people ask me and people still ask me, uh, you know, if did I, when I was in college, did I think I was going to be an entrepreneur? No. If you, if you had asked me in college, I would have, I would have said, what are you smoking? You know, uh, I was in the late sixties in college. Uh, so, but it's basically when people ask me about being an entrepreneur, the one thing I've always said is what Nike says, and that is just do it. Okay. That I think is the most important part of this whole thing. Decide you're going to do it, buckle down and just do it and stick with it. You're not going to be successful all the time. There's going to be successes. There's going to be failures. There's going to be luck. There's going to be bad luck. But keep your nose to the grind wheel and just do it. I'd love to hear a little bit about your predecessors a little bit as well, um, or maybe some of your influences. We touched on this at the beginning as well, but people like George Lamb, for example, and, and in 1992, and I, maybe you were at this outdoor retailer show, I'm not sure, but um, at that time, they kind of announced the 12 gear pioneers of the industry. Um, kind of memorial memorializing um, people like you know uh, the Cunninghams and the Holyabars and uh, Jack Stevenson and George Lamb was on that list of these gear innovators and gear pioneers and and you you had the that opportunity to work together or be influenced by him. Um, I don't know if you can speak to to your experience with him or others like Jerry or the Holyabars or it, you know just that influence that you had being in in Boulder, but. Um, any thoughts there on, on those influences? I don't think, you know, uh, except for, uh, well, uh, George Lamb and, uh, uh, and then to a greater extent, John Heinbach, who also worked for 
uh, Alpine Designs and later had um, uh, a company called Altra that made kits Mm -hmm. like Frostmine. Um, we knew all these people, you know, you know, we knew Dale Johnson who made Frostline. We knew George Lamb. We knew, you know, but um, th- we didn't know them well. Okay. And so, except for the fact that we respected their product, uh, enjoyed their product in many cases, because I also had an early Alpsport pack along with my you know, rucksack, along with my Kelty pack. Uh, uh, except for in respecting their product and enjoying it and watching them from arm's length, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't on a personal level, there wasn't not a lot of interaction. Yeah. It's not as if we all hung out together in the bars after work or something like that. I had met George Lamb, but really didn't know him well when I was uh, the computer operations manager at, Alpine Design. He was in the tail end of the, he had a non-compete clause or something or after selling to General Recreation, he had to hang around for six months. And I overlapped with George by about four months. But hey, I was running the computer and he was still doing design work or, or showing, you know, the new the new people how to how to design products. So I knew him then. But then, yeah, if you if, there was, as you're well aware, there was a lot of this sort of stuff going on in Boulder at the time. And we sort of all knew each other, knew of each other. Uh, we, we'd run into each other and would know who we were and have quick chats. Uh, we used to cooperate, uh, particularly at, at the factory level. Certainly, Greg would cooperate cooperate with non-competing companies in town at a marketing level. But from a credit standpoint, we used to contact all the other companies well in town and in the country about credit. You might come, we might be competing with Sierra design, but we would exchange credit information about our dealers. That was, that was, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that was reporting. Yeah. And and we would required because none of us wanted to mess around with bad credit, you know, for the, on, on the dealer's part. But yeah, so I, I think in the, I would end up talking to George Lamb maybe once every couple of months on the phone, he'd have something he'd want to talk to me about, or I'd talk to him. At the time he was running camp seven out in Longmont making sleeping bags. We were making packs and Boulder employees would go back and forth or, you know, what's the job market looking like over there, or we'd have things in common or gee, our, our, you know, cutting machine broke and we borrow yours <laughs> for a couple of days. I mean, you know, it, it, all of this kind of stuff was, was going on locally, but yeah, we never, I don't think it wasn't as if there was sort of a club where we'd all get together and after work and chat, it, it, it didn't work that way. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think I think having good product, um, uh, you know, respecting their product, whatever, is probably the the closest connection. Right. Well, and you had lots of peers at this time as well, getting into this business. I mean, what are your memories of of some of the competing companies out there at the time, and 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 competing in different ways? I'm sure. I mean, it sounds like obviously you visited people like Larry Horton and and his operation, but Jim and Greg Thompson or Dana or, you know, are there others that were missing at that, that time that were springing up that oh, impressed you or. 
It's, it's, it's interesting how our, cross, our paths crossed. Um, and probably again, 74, 75, I was actually uh, thrown out uh, of the uh, Alpenlight factory. Um, I showed up one day, you know, just again, I'm out selling and had some extra time. So I went by the Alpenlight factory. Alpenlight at the time was a big competitor with Kelty with external frame packs. And uh, the gentleman who was, I guess, the vice president or something, uh, basically, um, he, he, you know, I went in and said, hey, you know, I'd, love, I'd love to, uh, uh, you know, see what you're doing. I explained who I was and everything. And he said, sure, come on back, you know. So I, he took me into the back and we were walking around the pack factory and I was making all kinds of mental notes. Uh, and uh, uh, Don Douglas, who the owner, came back from lunch or something. And he saw me in the back of the factory and he took me by the scuff of my neck and dragged <laughs> me out of the factory as fast as he could. <laughs> And the interesting epilogue of that is in 19, this was 1974 or something, 1997, I spent several weeks on Don Douglas's boat in Southeast Alaska. Um, you know, we spent some, uh, some time together, we rediscovered each other. And so even though we were competitors, you know, um, we, we were, everybody was, everybody was friendly. Everybody was friendly. And again, you can kind of see that I enjoyed going by and making connection with competitors and non-competitors and also helping each other. Uh, Ted talked about uh, Camp 7 and the fact that George Lamb started Camp 7 about the time we started Heinz Snowbridge. I have Camp 7's number three sleeping bag. I uh, still have it. And that's because when I was going around selling Kirtland and Heinz Snowbridge, I needed something to stuff out the packs and make them look good for presentations. And so uh, George uh, gave me one of his sleeping bags, which I would use. And of course, then I'd pull the sleeping bag out as I'm you know, demonstrating my pack to a shop. And I'd make a good comment about Camp 7. You know, I, I wasn't selling Camp 7 at the time, but I, and, well, I was definitely doing that. We also did that with Blackburn Design racks back in the early days of Jim Blackburn and his racks, which came out like 75 or 76. And uh, Jim Blackburn and I remained very good friends. So we, we support, we, you know, uh, you know, there was competition, but, you know, truthfully, it, it wasn't cutthroat competition. It was, we were very supportive of each other. And as Ted said, behind the scenes, we were extremely supportive you know, um, sharing information, sharing equipment when necessary. Uh, you know, we knew employees behind the scenes, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's funny you mentioned Alpenlight because I've had another oh. show and tell. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that was Don Douglas. Matter of fact, Don just passed away about two years ago. Oh, really? Um, in early December. Yeah, he, 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 uh, was, he also was very influential in IMBA, the um, International Mountain Bike Association. I think he was a principal uh, originator of IMBA. And then he got into, he was always a sailor and he got into an, uh, uh, taking boats up through the Inland Passage between Seattle and Alaska. And eventually he and his wife, Rayanne, started to write uh, books about it. And he became uh, the best known author of yachting guides for the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. So that was, that was Don Douglas. And and again, yeah, you know, we shared right up until his death, we shared Christmas cards and everything. So it was kind of funny. I I enjoyed the fact that he dragged me out of his factory in 1974. (laughs) Yet by by 1997, we were good friends. And I spent a couple of weeks on his boat with him in Ray. That's great. Well, the competitors were, it was good competition. It was friendly yeah. competition. We'd compete. We'd keep our trade secrets. You know, there were certain bounds that that we wouldn't cross. But as a general rule, it was an industry in those days, uh, which was probably the case in any industry where it's growing. There's enough market share for to keep everybody happy, so you don't have to be cutthroat. But Greg, there was a bicycle. Somebody tried to get in the bicycle pack business in Boulder. I can't remember the name. Remember, he copied all of our packs down to the last stitch and went around bad-mouthing us to our dealers. He didn't last very long. I'm trying to think of his name. I can't remember. I can't remember who it was. Yeah. Doesn't ring a bell. No. Oh, I had a story I didn't get to earlier. It's kind of like Greg's running into bicycle packs in Iowa. I think it was a couple of years ago. No, it had to be three years ago because of the pandemic. Um, one of my hobbies in the many decades since getting out of the business, uh, my hobbies has been helping to keep World War II airplanes flying. And we were doing an air show up in Cheyenne. And uh, I was standing in line for something. Uh, and I had one of my old Heinz Snowbridge packs on. Of course, Greg and I both have lifetime supplies of of our product. And about three people in front of me, I look up there and there's one of our Ski Mountaineer day packs, our most popular day packs back in the days. And so I worked my way forward and I cut the line, went up and chatted with him and said, "How how do you like that pack? And he said, oh, geez, I love it. And he was younger. He was, you know, could be my son or grandson, I guess. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I designed that pack and built it. <laughs> and he was just awestruck. I mean, he, whoa. And it turned out he, he was visiting from out of state, but his, his parents had a place in Estes Park, which is near here, that they would visit in the summer. And uh, his parents had a supply of packs for the grandkids to use when they'd come into town. And he said, I would always try and grab this pack before, you know, my brothers and cousins would grab the pack because I love it so much. So he was very impressed. And then I had, uh, I guess I've still got some, I ski a lot with a ski club out of Boulder and several members in the ski club are still using some of our packs. Uh, one of them still has a Sorex that he uses occasionally. So. Yeah. Sorex is our internal frame pack. I think, as you're aware, occasionally our packs show up on eBay or Craigslist. And I, when they do, Greg and Henry and I, our third brother, email back and forth, hey, there's a pack out there. And we go and look at it. I'm surprised at how much these people are asking for these old packs. I mean, these vintage Packs, and but apparently there's the Alan Winkers out there that are involved in that. I, I can associate with that to a degree. I'm very much involved with vintage guitars. I have a couple of vintage guitars I've been playing for, since the 1960s, and they're worth a small fortune. So I, I understand the vintage mentality, but it never ceases to amaze me that somebody could be interested in one of our quote vintage packs. <laughs> 
the 1970s. Well, so I, as, I see you have a pal pack there. Oh, a what? Sorry. A pal pack. That pack that you have is a pal pack. Oh, the green one. Oh, this one here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I, I guess I wanted a little bit of an explanation here of, of what some of these are. <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't the pack you have also had the experimental label on it? That, that's earlier? this one here. Yeah. This won't help our podcast listeners, but for those on video, <laughs> there's this. Oh, one. okay. Yeah. This is a, this is a slant line, which was one of our first day packs. And the first ones that we'd hand out for people to test, we actually put a little label. We'd sew a, a secondary label under the main label, and it would say experimental on it. And that way we could tell very quickly and easily what was uh, one of our original packs. So that probably could be the original slant line standard. Wow. Big, you know. the, the Powell pack that you got was named after a college friend of Greg's. Uh, Ed Powell, do you want to tell him about how that came about? Well, he just he wanted a big fanny pack. So um, <laughs> and he was also a, a park service ranger. So and still he's still a friend. So, yeah, the, gr the green one that you have there is a is a waste or fanny pack. If people in England hear this, they're not going to enjoy the term fanny pack. But um and uh, yes, that's actually uh, very early. I can't believe we ever made that color green. Oh, <laughs> I don't think it was one of our top selling colors. <laughs> that's really bad. Anyway. Well, thank, that's helpful. Thank you for the explanation on those. Um, I guess one one last question of mine, and unless you have some some parting thoughts as well, but um, you know, a number of of outdoor companies and just companies in general you know, adopt the name of the founder. And um, I can imagine that that might be, I don't know, there's, there's some extra weight that comes with putting your name out there, right. Attaching your name to something and, and yeah. um, you know, whether it does well or poorly that could reflect back on you as a person. And um, I, I don't know how you, either of you felt about making that decision to, to name the company after, after, you know, or attaching your name to the company. But what, what are your uh, thoughts on that looking back or at the time? What did, how did you feel about that? There's, there's a bit of a story there. Uh, at the time that we were starting uh, Heinz Snowbridge, uh, long names uh, seemed to be in fashion, the North Face, Frostline, and so we originally kind of just uh, opened up uh, Freedom of the Hills by the Mountaineers, stuck our finger in the glossary and came up with Snowbridge. Mm. Okay. Now, we needed a logo. So we, there was a young company in Boulder that was, you know, young, uh, you know, marketing company that was just starting out. And uh, they offered to create a logo for us uh, for a very uh, economic price. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and uh, they were smart enough that when they came back with the logo prototypes, uh, they had put Hein in the logo. So actually, I believe it was John Harris and uh, Toss Hitchcock who uh, created Heinz. Named the, name the company. That's Named the, the company. <laughs> so originally, our original letterhead and everything had Snowbridge on it. But when we incorporated, we incorporated as Heinz Snowbridge. And, you know, truthfully, now, you know, with 50 plus years of experience and everything, I do think from a marketing and branding point of view, it's very smart. If you have a 
a you know family or a single uh, owner, whether it's Burton Ski Board or Head Skis or whatever, if you can incorporate the owner's name, it does. It's it's uh, very helps a lot with branding. You know? Oh, that's great. That's a great story. I, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> It forced your hand, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were smart and we looked at that and we went, oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll be behind Snowbirds. That's great. Well, I, I know we've already gone, gone over and taken a lot of your time, but any, I guess, any parting thoughts, anything that we missed, anything you want to have on the record? For me, I feel extremely lucky and humbled by the fact that we were in the right place at the right time, okay? Uh, and honestly, in the early 70s, if you made a reasonable product in the outdoor industry, you, you definitely had a strong start, okay? It, it, you know, that's, that's what really helped us. So being in the right place at the right time and putting our nose to the grind wheel and working hard, uh, you know, and I'm very humbled that people wanted to buy the product that we built. And, you know, and I'm also kind of humbled that they continue want, wanting to, um, you know, uh, own uh, an ancient piece of uh, mountaineering equipment. You know, so it's humbling. I'm yeah, honored. I think we're sort of a classic case of the American entrepreneur. I mean, what, what we did in uh, in our business is not unlike what a lot of other entrepreneurs have done in every business you can think about, you know, from plumbing supplies to microchips to computers to it's, you know, you, you've either identified or tripped on a market niche and you did something with it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, in in the big master scheme of things, we're not terribly unique. I guess our product is still out there. The brand name is still recognized by people from our generation, perhaps. But uh, even but other people weren't so lucky as to have the brand, you know, recognized by a lot of people. But we're sort of a classic American success story. Entrepreneurs who saw the opportunity and did something. Yeah. And, uh, it lucky worked with for the a while. Didn't work yeah. forever. Yeah. 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 It was, it was good. Well, it's absolutely a story worth, worth telling uh, for sure. So I appreciate you both being willing to take some time to share, share your thoughts and share the story in an audio video form. So yeah. thank you That's, both for being willing. Well, thank you for uh, your time too. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, Watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.